code of ethics is implanted in the upbringing of people. The upbringing of people is so comprehensive as to not exclude the possibility of random negative effects, that is, to generate behavior that's socially offensive. Possibly in the future, we'll try to generate behavior, and I'll try to describe that behavior, then I'll get back into the isms. The behavior is called maximum courtesy. Now that means that if you meet a person who thinks differently than you do, in fact, even opposite in many instances, you still try to tell them that you, due to your upbringing and where you come from, you have used to think that way, but now you're, you're thinking differently about similar subjects, you see. And you, maximum courtesy means to tell another person where you're at intellectually, even though you disagree. You tell them where you're at. So in doing that, even though uh, I were to tell Carl where I was at intellectually, he may not like it, but there's a security in it in that he knows where I'm at. Now if I tell you, oh, I'm happy to see you, everything's so wonderful, but I'm not happy to see you. But I don't act like I'm happy to see you. You know what I mean? I serve everybody coffee, but I forget you, Cable. And I cut everybody a big piece of pie, and you can lose a little piece somehow. So when you suspect that I don't feel good about you, it's much worse than knowing if you're nice off the bat, I don't like you, or I'm mad at you, or I resent you. You may feel bad, but there's a security in knowing how a person feels about you. A lot of people don't understand that. The security of knowing how a person really feels about you is a good thing. I'd much rather the person came over to me and said, look, you're a pain in the ass, you this and that. There's a security in that, and I have a kind of respect for the honest disagreement. They may not be right, I may be wrong, I don't know what it is, but it's good that it's out in the open. So maximum courtesy doesn't mean helping someone across the street. I don't want you to think of courtesy in the old sense. Courtesy is to say that Paul may dislike policemen. He may have beat the shit out of him as a kid. But he might say at a session, oh, policemen scare me. He said, I've been beat the shit out by a lot of policemen. And he says, I'm very frightened of that. Now, if he said that to a police officer, that would be a good thing, especially if they were getting along very well. He's well as good and bad all the time. As long as the policeman says that, you feel more secure. He said, well, some of those guys I wouldn't even go to dinner with. Then you say, Jesus Christ, maybe there are some that are different. But when you don't bother talking about it, when you don't bother, in other words, someone comes in there and says, is he a foreigner? Think. And I say, well, yes, he is. And he says, oh, I don't know. If I don't move in and say, so what? I think you're wrong. You see, if I don't do that, that would not be maximum courtesy. So maximum courtesy means whatever tools you have learned over a period of time, and try to impart to others. That's what I mean by it. But courtesy doesn't mean putting napkins on the table or anything like that. That's number one in the upbringing of people and relating. Now, some of you may not agree that when a person tells you something, even though it hurts, whatever they feel is the best way. That's maximum courtesy. I don't know if you have any disagreements with that. Unless the person is very nervous, has a heart condition, and if you tell them that, they keel over. Then you've got that. Then you've got a more sense. So first of all, one of the things in the conduct of the future is minimizing uh, the pleasantries that we dish out to one another, even though um, they may not be real. So in dealing with people, I would say that in the illustrated form that I do here, the people of the future are brought up that way, 
Two, they're not brought up in an enviable situation where you have better and more expensive clothing than the next kid. So not having that, a lot of problems are gone. When you eat and dress with, uh, let's assume, I don't know that this is true, that silk gabardine is the best material known. Let's assume it is. So clothing, if, if it, in contact with human skin, it doesn't produce rash or any other problems, that the clothing will be specified of six or seven basic types of material. The strongest, the most durable, the cleanest, the lightest, the airiest, whatever that can be, clothing will be specified within that range. And the design will vary. But there won't be any cheap cotton sweaters you can buy that, are, that don't hold up. You, uh, the nation will not make anything cheap. Does that make sense to you? No. It doesn't? What? Well, it will make, if you make cheap things, you have to make it over and over again. So if all the people of America, of the world, own the world, why should they make things that break down and wear out? That means more stuff on their own back. It's only good when you have a shirt factory that you make things that wear out and run down. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. All right, so the sense of it is gone. So if people are raised without competition, and they're raised in terms of maximum courtesy, and uh, the environment is rich enough to back it up, that's, that's the most important thing. Do you know what that means? That the resources are available. And that's why you don't have communism, nor do you have free enterprise, nor do you have fascism in Germany. You never had fascism anywhere in the world. Fascism would mean the total control and rule of the fascists. Because as long as you have police in the street under fascism, it means you've not attained fascism. If this was a military dictatorship where everybody was brought up to believe in the dictator, say, believe in that. You don't need police. If everybody really believed in that. But if there are people who wonder or doubt, then you need police. So you have communism, then you have the secret police, because they're anti-communists and factions and what they call deviationists. So the, the secret police does a constant scan of people in high places to make sure there's no deviation from whatever mm -hmm. path. I'm not talking about good or bad. Yeah. Whatever path the in-group has selected. What you're, what you're really saying is there is, is no total control. Right. Yeah. They have not achieved total control. Now, you don't have to, uh, I know it's, it's very difficult to talk about this subject, but if you had three kids and they loved you for whatever reasons, you don't have to reassure them constantly that you love them and uh, that you will protect them. But if you manifest that, that is always protecting your kids and you're swimming with them and helping them and when they try to climb a mountain, you catch them as they slip down. You know, you're always, that is real security. But if you put your hand on the shoulder and say, believe me, I'm your mother and I love you more than any, but you never do anything, the child can be terribly insecure. So these children brought up by a sensible mother, let's assume you're that mother, and you say those, you do rather than say, those kids will be secure. You needn't worry about them plotting against you, or I wish mother wouldn't come in and we can watch TV. So they don't have those feelings. So when you come in, they don't change the program fast. Say, Mommy, we're watching animals having sexual intercourse. They don't need to turn it off when you come in. And, and say, well, how come you didn't turn it off? So, that would be unreasonable. I'm curious. Say, well, they're watching. And they might ask you questions. But if you've got to have children that run in the other room, pick up things, and hide it, then I would say a police state is when Mother looks in like that and says, what are you doing in there? See, that's the police state in the home. Now, so many homes are operated 
like a police state. Okay? Well, I say to my kid, if you want to shit on the floor, it's all right with me. It's all right with me. The police state is only a byproduct of chaos. Without a police state, like, if you didn't have a police state in a social and economic breakdown, you get total chaos. <coughs> total chaos means a lot of people will slaughter a lot of other people. With a police state, they protect the landowners and the established order. A police state in Germany protects the fascists. A police state in Russia protects not the ideology, but the, the elite. You see, the communists don't have a communist state. This is the message I'm trying to get across, which is very difficult. Communism as an ideal state would take uh, many, many years to attain. It really is anarchy. You know what that means, anarchy? It means no government. In other words, if I go to the beach with you people, I'm not going to say, now you go into the water, Clarissa, up to here, and then go out and lie there for seven minutes. I don't need to tell you what to do. So if you go to, if we all go to the beach together, you're free. Okay? Now, when you take children to the beach, they will go into the water, they'll throw some mud at a child. So what you have to do with children is, you know, you have to move in, otherwise they keep going. So until their habits are established. But if we raise the children the new way, they don't go through those stages. You see, we have a problem getting kids in school that have already been loused up by society. But the teachers are, I don't know what I'm going to do with that little Jimmy. I don't know what I'm going to do with Betty. Because it isn't their nature. They've been loused up before they got to school. So here's our problem. Our problem is getting the kids when they're early enough, very young, and giving them the new orientation. Then we don't need overseers. I try to point this out in relation to the human body just try to say that this hand won't take the pencil away from the other hand. You can't twist it and make it drop it out and take it back, you know? If this eye is looking and this eye is looking, this hand is not going to cover that eye. It's got a favorite eye. There's no, no war in the tissues unless a foreign agent gets in, like bacteria. So the human body is essentially a state of government of cells and various types of interrelated organisms that seem to have a pattern of conduct that is useful to the other organs, just by the nature of the organization. And so I would say that if you uh, lose your eyesight, a great deal of your body is hurt. Why, we don't have a society like that. Our society is, it seems that if you share your drinking water with somebody else, they appreciate it very much. But then when they say, where do you get all that water from? You're a great water collector. You say, well, I get it from this area over here. And they say, gee, thanks. And then the next day, they build a fence around it, put a machine gun there, and they keep you away from it. So in our present culture, a free enterprise system, where people don't know what the intent is of another person. The whole idea is, he buys 100 acres for so much money, and then he says, Fresco, I've got a good deal for you. 100 acres for 10 times that amount. So in, in the free enterprise system, it's kind of an individual opportunistic type thing. So we are somewhat insecure and suspicious of the intentions of others. Does that make sense? If a beautiful girl manicures his hands, you know, you don't sit back and say, well, there's a manicure. You're threatened. There's always a game of threat existing in our society. So all of us are scared. So we have auto insurance, fire insurance, and we got some wood we can knock it. We, so we're all scared. That's why uh, we hang on to each other so much, because we're afraid. Now, if you understand this, if this child is rejected by the other children, 
let's assume in our society, all, we're all the kids and we walk away from you. You might walk over to Carl and say, Carl, what is it? I don't know what happened. And he says, well, we don't like your new hairstyle. You say, well, these kids are psychologically maladjusted. You won't feel insecure. Because that is not valid. If I think he ought to have a part in the middle of his beard, that's not a valid thing. He says, Fresco, that's a question of values. Now, if he says to me, gee, I'm disappointed you, Fresco, for recommending that I part my beard, he wouldn't be disappointed. He'd be sorry to find out that that's where my values were. You understand what I mean? Then he would put his hand on my shoulder with a deep lump in his throat, saying, if you ever want to help any help out of that magazine, give me a ring. But he's not mad at me. See the difference? You're not threatened. The future, the reason that you're not threatened is because nobody actually can threaten you unless they control your life. You know, that have the strands that control your food and all that. But I can't threaten you with a value difference. I can't threaten you. Let's say you have two children, and they come over to see me, and they like Uncle Fresco. They put their arms, they tell me a story, and then they start fishing. My dad never tells me any stories or anything like that. Now, you come over to me one day, you say, Fresco, my kids are always coming over to talk to you, and I don't like that one bit. They're my kids. Now, in the future, he might say, what are they talking about? Geology, the earth sciences. He says, yeah, that's extensional of my kids. Then he doesn't say, I'm sorry, I can't give them that. Because his intention is not to give them everything. It's to give them the best you can. I can teach your kids to draw better than you can. But it doesn't mean I'm taking them away from you. You understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. Once you can get that through your head, when I send my kids to school, they can teach my kids a lot of things better than I can. But if the child falls in love with the teacher and says, teacher, I like you better than I like my daddy. And then the kid comes back and says, daddy, I like the teacher more than I like you. I don't want to see that teacher. I say, well, what are you doing with my kid? That would mean that that teacher is so extensional in the kid's terms that the kid identifies and learns a lot. So I say, gee, that's terrific. Then the teacher's going to take everybody on a picnic Sunday. And he comes to see me and says, right, can I take your kid? And I say, would you like to go, Billy? And he says, you know, sure. That's ter terrific. Now, what is this threat that everyone has? Why is the threat so dominant? Before we get into cultures, we have to understand the product that they call human nature. They say, no matter what kind of society you build, there's only going to be people threatening each other. There's going to be trouble. There's only going to be trouble because we fail to take into consideration this fact. You come in here and you draw better than I do. Much better. Better perspective. Better light and shade. Instead of feeling threatened, what am I threatened for? Because when he draws better than I do, I come to learn. I said, how do you do that? Then how do you get that effect? Now I am richer because he knows more than I do. Why should I be threatened? If I swim and you tell me to keep my fingers together and the water doesn't leak through, you are not a threat to me. You enhance my life. The future means that anyone, whether it be a crab woman, a black woman, Chinese, or anything that walks and crawls, that can enhance your perception. It's not a threat. But when you open a grocery store across the street from me and sell at a lower price, because you know I got 500 in the bank and you've got 20,000 in the bank, you can do that for one year and break my bank. You are a threat in that sense. 
in the price system. Now, if you buy shoes, say like this, for $275 and I sell them for $9 and you sell them for $4, just till I'm broke. Do you understand what I mean? Now, that's called shrewd enterprise. You're a shrewd businessman. You're also a shrewd businessman. If I go to your shop and you manufacture slacks for women, and I say, uh, well, what do you get for a pair of slacks? You say, well, I get $3 a pair, or $10 a pair. I say, what if I bought a thousand pairs of cash? Uh, you say, well, we can go a buck and a half. I say, make it a buck and a quarter. Now, why buy a lot? I can undersell every slack shop in town. Because uh, I can go I go to my landlord and say, you know, what do you want a month rent for this store? He says, $100 a month. And I, and, or I say, well, I'll give you $1,000 cash for the year. How's that? He says, well, it's okay. I can use $1,000 now. About that $1,200. See? So a shrewd businessman is a guy that does, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but he's a guy that can get more for less because he, he <coughs> envisions a larger system. And he's been trained in business administration and in business handling. So a guy that does that, you don't like. You'd rather pay 1200 a year. But remember, in this thinking system we live in, there's a thing called the rules of the game. Now the rules of the game is if you bought a house for $700 25 years ago, you could sell it for 800 today. But the next house you buy, like your house, is going to cost you 8000 Do you understand what I mean? So you live in a society that has a dirty game. There is no way for you to step over into the future because you are trapped in this society. Therefore, when you perform on the stage, whatever you, kind of dancing you do, you don't say, well, I love to dance so much, I do it for people. That's all right if the admission's free of Gusman Hall. If people go into Gusman Hall free, then you dance free. But if they collect $10 per person, you don't dance free. If I make a movie showing fresco shoes, and I make these shoes, and I say, gee, when you pose, you know, walking down the street with my shoes, you're a wonderful friend. Well, that's a commercial venture. That's not friendship. Now, if I break a leg and call Helsley all the way to work in the morning, that's okay. But if I want to put up my own building in the back, and I say, call, will you help me? That's a commercial venture. Does that make sense to you? I said, well, you're a beautician. Do my hair. See? Well, the other thing is that that's a commercial venture. And that is not a friendship venture. Anybody don't understand the difference? Let's say I'm scared. People threaten me. And you're an officer. I say, well, you guard my house for a week, you know. I said, you're a real friend. I'm not a friend of yours. Because I'm using your training free. So in this thinking free enterprise system, you have to live between the systems. Otherwise, you'd be out repairing everybody's television set that you knew. If you had a television license, and this was your field, there are always people come over that got phonographs and television sets that need repair, unless they, in turn, do something for you in some way. Does that make sense? So, otherwise, I can see where you would be busy all your life taking care of friends. So, you have now a commercial society. You say to people, I don't want to be that commercial. So instead of charging you $40 to repair your phonograph, I want to charge you $10. Another guy said, gee, Paul, you send yourself cheap. When you go to a dentist, he doesn't say, all right, Paul, since you're a $10 man, I'll drill your teeth and fix them for $2.50. He said, but dentist, you can't make anything. He said, don't worry about it. Then you come home and you tell Carl about that wonderful dentist.
That wonderful dentist is the guy that doesn't charge very much. He's not a wonderful dentist. He doesn't charge very much, and so you hang the label on him, wonderful dentist. So you must understand that in some instances within the price system, this is real funny, let's assume Carl was a psychiatrist, but I had some problems, emotional problems, which I couldn't resolve. And ordinarily he gets 50 bucks an hour, but he's my friend. So I go to see him, and after he gets through, I give him 60 dollars. He says, why 60? Because you're my friend. I don't ask him to make it 40. Is that clear? You know, people are strange. It's very hard to think that way, isn't it? If you are my friend, and you charge $50, I will pay you more. I don't know if you understand. Do you? Yes. No? No. People, you know, you're an auto mechanic. You're my friend. That my friend thing, fix the car, and tell me what you want, and then bake him a cake, too, and take him to the movies and feed him. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's very strange. It seems to run ass backwards in society today. Mm -hmm. Any questions? That's not commercial, though, is it? What? Like, say, he's a psychiatrist and you... Hey, you pay him fifty dollars. He's my friend. Okay, he's a friend. And it's fifty dollars for a session. But you give him sixty. That's not commercial. No, no. It's in the sense of saying that because he's my friend, I'm not going to take advantage of him. In other words, if I make a painting and you like it so very much, I'll give it to you. But she's an architect. She just can't help but design another room or something. Nobody seems to stop at this. The future, it, it, people become more concerned with bettering the other person one shot. That is, instead of trying to find a way of doing that to Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Do you know what this means? In the future, it'll be like that. Because in the future, not everyone is concerned with bettering the other person. They're concerned with, well, bettering the other person in that sense, not beating the other person. So the orientation is different. Therefore, you need no government. But an anarchist society is where people are sane enough to know how to behave. And the only thing that makes them sane enough is that there's such an abundance. Now, let me explain to you. There are so many radios, so many photographs, so many refrigerators, that he don't need to steal it. <laughs> he walks down the street, and it's abundant society. But what? He don't need to steal your wallet. He can go to a movie there free. Libraries are free. Universities are free. And all restaurants are free. You just walk in and eat. There's no... So what's he going to steal money for? Is that clear? Now, let's say that the system changed from a free enterprise system to a collective system of the kind I'm talking about, not communism or fascism. And Ted has a coin collection, coins from all over the world. He's been collecting for 20 years. And I said, well, now, Ted, people don't have personal collections anymore. And we would like to see you do this, or we would like your views on this. We would like you to take all your coins and put them in the public domain so they can go on tour all over the world so that everyone can see that coin collection. Uh, we would appreciate if you did that. You don't have to do that, okay? Well, you can't own Leonardo da Vinci paintings in your private home in the future. Then we'll walk over and we'll say, everyone would like to see those paintings. Would you make them available to society so they can tour? If Ted says no, in our local journal, you know, it says uh, he uh, turned his coins in so they can be toured. Ted says no. So Risa says she's got a collection of automobiles and the history of automobiles, and she won't turn it over either. Well, it's just, and so Risa said no. So people would be ashamed not to. So you don't need to hurt them for it. Besides, when, when you have a wonderful coin collection or art collection, and everyone can see it, you'll get your kicks in the future by everyone enjoying your work. You know, you wouldn't want to dance in black 
all knowing to see you. You enjoy pleasing people with your music or whatever it is that you have to give. But it is not like it is today. It's quite different. So you cannot arrive at the end of government unless you end scarcity. Is that real fair? There must be an abundance of goods. Well, I can just say this. No matter what society you look at, if you get an airplane, fly over a society, and you see crowded areas, slum areas, if you see differences, there's going to be riots, stealing. If you see big gardens with beautiful homes all around, the probability of people interacting with one another on that level is low. The only problems you'll have in a clean society, meaning abundant society, is this problem, which is jealousy, envy. But if all the homes were the same quality, not the same in appearance, the same quality, like a $100,000 home, and all of the homes have the best food in it, the best lighting in it, where does the envy come in? I wouldn't know what the function of envy would be, except that if you dance better than I did, if you dance much better than I did, why do I have to feel bad? Because somebody once told me, you've got to be the best dancer, the best in the class. I'm your father, I'm proud of you. And you're the best marks in biography. You see my son's marks in mathematics? Mm -hmm. You see my son's marks in chemistry? Once you start that shift, he's got to do best. He may, he may be in good health, he may be good at water skiing, but somebody beat him on a football field and he walks around depressed. Because we don't push those values. Uh, I would like to see a movie made, just that, that one I always talk about, where a guy is laying in Union Rescue Mission with a cigar, completely broke, bum, down and out, and somebody says, look at you, you're a bum, a failure, he says, that's right. Without any of this, well, I couldn't help it, my family were coal miners, you know. I didn't go to school, didn't have an education. You know, all that sort of shit. Well, we have to apologize for what we are. If that ever goes, I would say you see the beginning of civilization there. Now, very few people walk over the door and say, you can't think, you can't reason, <laughs> you don't know what one and one is. When it's raining, you go out, you don't know enough to get near the fireplace. You know, the dog's just going to look up. Once you look at those big eyes, look at Because you melt away because you know it doesn't understand and you accept those differences. And people that have had dogs for years will tell you that they've done fantastically dumb things. But you don't you say, well look, with his equipment, he can't do any better. Now, if somebody in the future could stop really placing a negative value on people's inability to cope with certain problems. I thought that we don't make enough movies about the success of failure. You see, here's the, the semantic problem. This person wants to become a bank president. That's what he wants. And he, over, over the years, in seven years' time, he is now bank president. He started as a clerk. That's what he wanted. Now, this man never wanted anything particular. He just doesn't want to be president, do he? And that's what he is. But people come over and they tap on his shoulder. Yeah, how come you're not a bank president? Average guy. He says, that's right. He doesn't want to be anything else. He says, you're a failure. He made what he wanted. He didn't want anything to think. You understand? You know, Andre? Andre was one of the most... Now, he was what he wanted to be. I had about, I don't know, 20 paintings, oil paintings that I did. He says, this would be valuable for my art store in Canada. So we, so we took them all to Canada. Then he came back about four months later and said, Andre, how'd the paintings go? 
Nobody wanted that. I said, okay. Uh, he says, I gave them away. I says, okay. He says, since nobody wanted them, he gave them away. Well, I didn't know him that well. I thought, maybe he is like that. He's a very strange guy. <laughs> and finally, they caught up with him, and they gave him like 8,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he lived for years very well. Now, when he first met me, I said, what are you? And he says, I am a psychologist. Psychologist from Canada, from uh, McGill University. Oh, he says, well, I said, you know, which way do you mean Freud has a little bit of a way, see. <laughs> and uh, he was a very good man, Bob Lowe, you know. But he didn't have enough information to back it up. Did you know that he played all those roles? Well, I don't, Bob. When you meet a guy who tells you psychology, you don't, you don't run a total screening. You run a general screening. Anyway, very interesting thing about it is he, he did all of these things, and he lived a long time. Then he called me from Canada and told me he was in jail. I said, how is it? He said, I'm making paintings for the warden. <laughs> in jail, he had won a lot of friends, and he, he is a successful man. Andre was one of the most successful men. <laughs> so, the whole idea of apologizing to other people for not being successful, I think everybody is pretty much where they want to be with the values that they have learned. And the idea of shame because somebody convinced you that you're not where they think you ought to be. You've been with the police force, how come you're not in charge? Now, they give you a sense of saying, shake the shit out of you, now you begin to worry. And so I would say that the future will try to give people a set that makes them comfortable and try to interest them in enough areas that they may want to look into other things. So in that way, I think we can do away with envy, competition, if we don't uphold anybody on a pedestal for what they are. You must be a surgeon and do surgery because it's important for you to make people well, not to be before the medical board and receive all kinds of awards. We would like people, like I said before, to paint, to write music, do theater, photography, because they love doing that. No more than that. And I know what I'll say, gee, I like your work, it's terrific. But there's nobody that's put up on a pedestal, and nobody wants to. It embarrasses them. Now, now this is difficult. Let me see if I can do it. If you were very well-dressed, I mean, when I say well-dressed, you were wearing a coat that was $11,000 and shoes that were $1,000 a shoe, and you were walking through the slums, would it make you feel important, or would it hurt you? What kind of feeling would you have? No. Yeah. If you were dressed very expensive clothing and walking through the slums. How would I feel? Yeah. I guess I would feel dirty. I don't know. But I would feel bad, too. I would feel bad because I make all these people feel terrible. You see? So I always felt that it must be possible to condition people not to go into an area where people are starving. It'd be like uh, Paul driving into an area in Africa where he was going to put up a glass dome and have roast turkey and a bunch of servants serving all kinds of and all these people looking at him through the glass dome. I would say that the man is mentally ill to be able to do that. So anyone that wants to drive a better car, if you drive a better car, a more expensive car than anyone else, I don't know, a Rolls Royce, or all kinds of special stuff, you should feel pain if you're sane, driving through an area where everybody's got trouble cranking their car and misery. You must emphasize the misery of normal people. Now in a sane society, no one would feel miserable if you drove around with an expensive car 
for an abnormal car with additional ostentatious weights of decoration, they would feel that poor Paul, he is so hungry for recognition, you know, that he's hanging all this shit on his car because he, he doesn't feel wanted. He doesn't feel accepted. But the people would not envy you. They would feel sorry for you. Do you understand the difference? So I get back to talking about social conditions. I'm still trying to get there, but I'm trying to tell you what the ingredients are. Before you have a sane society, the quality you have to have. So go back to this particular case of a gangster in L.A. named Smiley. None of you ever heard of him. This is a little after the Al Capone days. And he came to see me because he had a lot of problems. You call them emotional problems. And he came, he came and he wore the best of clothing. He wore the best of ties. That was what they would tell him to wear. And he used to speak with a kind of a New York accent. And he says, I like class. He says, if it ain't got class, he says, I don't like it. And he used to admire that, you know that term, you know, class? It's kind of conspicuous waste. And he says, I bought some paintings. He says, I paid, you know, 3000 for this one, 17000 for that one. He's showing me all this stuff in his home. That's when he came to see me. He's just telling me about himself. Then he said, uh, he said, let me tell you about why I came to see you. He says, I got this Rolls Royce. He said, I like to drive it through public town. Slow. You see them boogies standing there in their eyes open, looking at that car. He said, now why do I do that? He says, why do I know? He says, I know it's not right. He says, but I feel so good. He says, I have to keep going back and doing it all the time. Oh, well, I gave him a little bit of the kind of thing he would understand. I said, when you were a kid, you would stand and you see a guy drive by in a big shiny car, and your eyes used to pop out like that. And you said, in his head, boy, if only I, see. And so you got that car, and now you're playing the second role. You're going back there, and all these eyes are staring. You know all the envy, and it makes you feel important. And I says, now, you might know this, that you're full of shit. Never feel important, because you have to keep going back. Because if you really felt important, you wouldn't have to go back. So, and the reason you're telling me how much you paid for these paintings is because the only way you impress people is by price. And the kind of people that are impressed by that are full of shit. Do you understand that, Smiley? It's your friends that come in. So he paid thirteen thousand dollars for that painting. You know, that's why they thought. Man, he says, you know what you paid for that? Well, I says, these aren't your friends. These are people who know a guy who pays thirteen thousand dollars for painting. So, Smiley, you don't have any friends, you don't have any class, you're a fucking phony. You got a lot of money, but you're a phony, and that's what you probably He says, uh, what's the matter with class? I says, well, I says, what you call class is the things you didn't have, the things you thought you could never have. So you put, they put a value on that a long time ago, but it never satisfied you. And I says, your candlesticks. I says, that's dumb. Why don't you have a fireplace with logs in it? Why don't you have a kerosene lamp? There's an electric light shows that man could think he gets the light right where he wants it. You put a candle there, you've got wax vapor that's bad for inhaling. It stinks up the area. The wax gets into the fabric. The light burning on the table is a pain in the ass trying to look at somebody on the other side of it. And I said, now you're doing that because people with good taste have candles. It made you feel important to see some people sitting at a dinner table with a certain layout and you in your fucking rags 
felt you could never get out of it unless you sat at that dinner table, which you always knew you were smiley, the phony. People give their art paintings to a museum with their names on it. This is a, a, the Ford Foundation, or Henry Ford presents these paintings. I said, Ronnie, when you can give your paintings to a museum without your name on it, and when you can, you know, do those, and then you'll feel different. Because you know that all these things that you do never make you feel important. And the higher you hold your head, you know how these people walk on the grace with their head high and all sophisticated? They have the phonies. Because real people don't have to do that to feel important. Now that's the message in the future. And when these kids are brought up without playing all those phony games, getting off that whole carriage, uh, then I would say you don't have the ingredients of social problems. Now, if you have a bunch of poor people, and you have a bunch of millionaires here, and there's a social revolution, and they destroy the wealthy, and distribute the goods amongst everyone, the poor people are not impressed. So they build a palace like that, called the Palace of the Soviets, with big pillars and tons of gingerbread and 400 white steps leading up to it. You know, the same old bullshit to impress man with what he is, a schmuck. And they got all the carvings in here, and a guy on a horse up here, and the heads of all the monkeys that lived before, you know, and this gigantic lion here, and a big flag up there, and man is that size. They're trying to impress themselves. Look how important. Fuck it. This is no good. This is the bullshit. This is the conspicuous waste. Now, I mentioned before that in Rome, they, were, they had no other way of holding up that ceiling except with a lot of columns. Now, with modern engineering, you can have a gigantic span and not a column in it because you don't need it anymore. And still, we go to Washington or downtown. We got all this shit. But once people were impressed by it, and this goddamn stuff today is strong enough to support itself without all of these columns. So they got conditioned to the columns. They tried to make you feel that like you're walking into the hall of justice, big sign up there, with an angel with white wings, you know? And you're so small, you feel, my God, isn't that impressive? Well, it's not. Man that builds that feels insecure. A secure person doesn't need these gigantic, impressive-looking buildings. So after the revolution, the uh, Communist Party built the Palace of the Soviets with marble and all chandeliers and all the conspicuous horseshit to say, now the little people can have that which the elite had. You know, how much did that chandelier cost? See, well, they had the same sickness. They never were, there was never a social revolution. It was just a change in the leadership, but people were still impressed. Now, the, the subway in Russia has imported marble for the walls, well, which is shit. And chandeliers hanging in a subway terminal. Now, they don't need that shit. That's what I mean by the failure. But they failed because the little people were not conditioned to be different. And the Russian leaders lived in big houses, drove big cars, because their values were never changed. They read about the bourgeoisie. They read about bourgeois values, exploitation of the masses, but they didn't know what it meant. They didn't know it in tangible terms. Because it isn't important. If I let you live in a bigger house than I live in, it might be because I'm smarter than you. 
Not because the person feels great living in a big house. Again, it tells you how insufficient they are. Do you have any trouble with these values? The idea is that probably if they got to heaven, normal Christians, and they say, Jesus, where's your estate? Because you see that little old dirt shack on the road? There's no need to impress anybody with your life. That, that we walk around with these constant ads. You know, I swim three miles for so many seconds. And that's the game that we have to get over in order to attain civilization. So we have to build an environment and generate a viewpoint that is non-competitive. So when somebody gets up and dances better than you, says, gee, how do you affect it that way? You, and they show you and say, gee, that's great. I'm sure glad you came. When somebody comes and dances better than both of you combined on one foot, you say, fantastic. You entertain me no end. And then someone else comes in, so you hug them all. You understand? You don't say, hmm, and set anyone aside. You never set anybody aside. Because let's assume that we did it the other way. Sometimes scientists tell me the reason we experiment with monkeys is because they have an IQ of two. Now, then you make a movie on the future, and these people come in flying saucers, and they have an IQ of 8,000. So they use us for monkeys. <laughs> Are you going to accept that? Suppose people came with an IQ of 8,000, and they put you in a cage, and notice how he stands there and walking up like that. And there are people looking at you, and they're watching that. Even though you have a low IQ, you still don't want to be abused. Now, the only way these idiots can understand this is to just have another civilization come with a higher IQ. Do you want to be their monkeys? Do you want to be put through the shit? So I think that the more intelligent we become, the more civilized we become, we don't try to outdo anybody. That's a sign of just outdoing somebody for the sake of beating them. But if you can make a better land that's steady and doesn't burn out, you don't want the body, you want to make a better product. That's the attitude I'd like to see. Okay, so in a nutshell, the free enterprise system is inherently competitive by the nature of our upbringing. If the money men get too much money and there's an economic dip and the masses succeed in taking it away from them, that's communism. If there's a total and complete distribution of the remaining wealth and resources, that's true communism. If you have a communist elite where some members of the Socialist Party or Communist Party live better than others, that would be transitional communism. That isn't true communism. True communism is when everybody in the civilization lives in about equal medical care, food, and the environment they live in is equal to anyone else's environment. Anything less than that is transitional. So you never have communism, you have transitional society. Because the people that came into it have a transitional value. Fascism, you never have true fascism. Because true fascism, like I said before, was always being installed. The fascists were always uh, taking this area and the other area, and they never finished. Now if Hitler won the war and they took all the areas and had all the resources they needed and got rid of all the people that they didn't want, then the cameras would be turned against one another. I said, now, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Even amongst the fascists. See, once they have a common enemy, they will fight it. But after they've won, killed everything, knocked everything off, out of the way that they didn't want, they would go on with their factories, turning out automobiles. Science would continue. And in the scientific research, they would find that their methods of social operation were inefficient. And their social views were inefficient. So eventually, fascism will move in toward a technological society with a self-correcting system. Now, does anybody think you know what I mean by a self-correcting system? 
that all systems are self-correcting. Now here's what that means. If a fish is born with a fin facing the wrong direction, it can't swim very fast, and it'll be done away with. Now, I know you people haven't been here when I talked about nature having no purpose. We have, had a drawing here of a bird with a long beak, and uh, the worms, this beak is three inches long, and the worms are about three inches deep in that area. Most of the worms are found in that area. Three inches a little more. And in the early days, the scientists say, isn't that wonderful? The beak is exactly three inches long, and during drought, most of the worms are three inches. So nature, the adaptation of the species to the problem. And that's not true. What happened was the worms were at all variations, and the birds had varying lengths to their beak. All birds, even of the same family, have, you know, a quarter inch to sixteenth of a length difference. So as drought came, all the birds with the short beaks died off. And the only birds that were left to mate were the long beak birds. So they don't have long beaks to get the worms. Those with the short beaks are dead. And all birds born with a web between their feet, like that, can get out of the water faster. And if some ducks are born with less web, like that, they can't get out of the water as fast when a predator comes after them. So that's why you see all ducks with a long... They don't have a large web to get out of the water, but those that didn't have it are dead. Does that make sense? Because they used to tell me that there was a beetle. It's called a rhinoceros beetle. It's here in Florida, a little bug with a horn up here. And in my school books, it said that the function of that horn on this little bug was to keep would-be attackers off it. That's what it's for. I said, well, it has a very soft belly, which I found out later. There's another bug that lives in the ground that has a pointed snoot, looks like a straw, and it sticks it into his belly and <laughs> it sucks out anything. And when you see it's a shell. So that horn doesn't protect it at all, see? So I didn't want you to think that, were you at the session when I talked of protective horns? Like when I was a kid, they had this uh, animal called a triceratops. It had three long horns on it, like that. And my school book said that, that that dinosaur used those horns to ram other animals with. That's what they were for. And I bought it. I wrote it down because I was just like everybody else. Then when I went to the zoo and I saw a rhinoceros, the horn went the wrong way. It didn't go forward. It went backward, like that. And the rhinoceros looked something like this. And I said, well, gee, uh, you know, how come this horn goes back like that? They said, well, that's for ripping them over. I head down. I, you know, I said, well, that makes sense. I was still naive in that area. Then I said, how come this animal called Triceratops has this big collarbone? And they said, well, that big collarbone is to counterweight the head. The head is so heavy with the horns and the head mounts on this part of the vertebrae, and it's balanced so it can move its head up and down that has this heavy collarbone. Gee, that makes sense. Until I saw a hippopotamus. The hippopotamus is all head, no counterweight. So he gets, the head is so heavy he has to lean it on a rock. So I said, where's his counterweight? Then I began to find the contradictions of nature. Everything in the school book seemed to have a purpose, except the things that they left out. They'd say, uh, Oh, look at the nature, how it camouflaged all the little chameleons. You know, the little salamanders, chameleons that change color. They say when they're on a dark green leaf, they go dark green. When they're on a yellow leaf, they go yellow. That's what it said in the school books. But the chameleon doesn't do that. If you change the temperature, so many degrees, it goes dark green. Lower it, whether it's on a yellow leaf or green leaf. Two, 
See, what it said in school books had nothing to do with the animal. Now, if you take a little camellia and you put sunglasses on it with lines on the sunglasses, lines occur on the back of the camellia. So it's what goes into the eye that changes color. In other words, the back of the camellia is a crude eye with pigmentation cells, and they're activated by the eye in some instances. So if you put a checkerboard eyeglasses on a chameleon, checkerboard appears on their back. Now here's the most interesting thing ever done with a chameleon. They took a photograph of a human being, the kind of photographs I draw, mostly tonal scales like this. It's just a tonal scale on the eyeglasses like that. And they got a photograph on the opposite side of the chameleon. Not that regular, irregular. So the chameleon's eye activates the pigmentation cells. He doesn't change color to fit in with the camouflage. Is that right? But the school book says he changes color to fit in. Nature has no purpose. It's utterly chaotic. Now, the other thing we did, which was an interesting experiment, too, is the fish, in which if you take ordinary fish that are silver and paint black lines on them, a special kind of oil paint on the fish, paint those black lines on them, and paint some area of the tank with lines all over the place, and one area of white sand, and put a predatory in, some fish that will chase it around, it will spend a lot of time in this area lined up with the lines, because the fish doesn't bother this much. When you take a white fish and put it on black sand, it's chased by all the other fish. So if you've got a fish that has this pattern on it, just general, and green and white spots, it'll swim around the bottom of the water until it comes to an area, and it'll be eating a bit, but when it's in an area with similar pattern, it's not bothered as much, so it stays there. But the fish does not adapt to the environment. The way you got it in school is asked backwards, that the fish generates stripes for protection. It's just like you, if you had stripes running this way, and you were standing in front of strata, rock, shaped like that, the Japanese wouldn't be able to pick you off as easy. But when you turn the other way, so the stripes run up and down, you're picked off. The same for fish. They're born every which way, and they swim along the bottom of the water. And if there's some areas they stay in, they stay in many areas, but they're not bothered as much. So they remain there, and we think that nature endowed them with that coloring as protection. That would then put intelligence in nature, because it made a white swan and put it on a blue lake. And that's outstanding as hell. Why didn't it make the swan blue? They, they never tell you about that. They look at the beautiful, attractive colors of a peacock. And they extend the, to attract the opposite sex. And they say, do you always animals hold their heads up and clack, clack to attract the opposite sex? Now, that's, a, that's another lie that I'll prove to you. If you take those animals during the mating season, they'll hold their head up if nothing's around. In other words, I'm trying to tell you that there's no purpose to life. There's no purpose to anything. They used to tell me that the purpose of the eyebrows were to collect water when you sweat, and the water would run down and be bypassed so it won't run into your eye. They said that the nature endowed the camel with a transparent eyelid. Do you know what that's like, a transparent eyelid? So when there's a sandstorm, it can see where it's going. Now, if nature is intelligent, it doesn't make a sandstorm and then put a transparent eyelid in. You know what I'm getting at? The medical books say that the human body has antibodies to protect itself from disease. That's what it's for. Then you've got to figure that nature, in its infinite wisdom, doesn't make disease and then make antibodies to protect it. Now, if nature put a soft bundle of fat here so when you fall, you cushion the shock, 
why does nature make you form? If nature's smart enough, it leaves out the bubbling fat, you don't form. In other words, you don't, you're not given antibodies and then germs. Because a medical book becomes sane when it says the purpose, if they say the purpose of antibodies is to diminish the spread of disease. If they, they'd be all right if they said that, but they must also say the purpose of a sneeze is to spread disease. When you're in a classroom and you got a cold and you sneeze or cough, you spread it, right? Then you have to say, the purpose of piles is to irritate your asshole. The purpose of a headache is to annoy the shit. <laughs> no, have a purpose. The purpose of gas is to stink up the area. <laughs> you can't say the purpose of the eyes is to see. The purpose of teeth are to eat. Also give you a toothache. All kinds of things. But the school books are that way because of religion. Religion had put purpose in everything. They said that the reason that the Africans have a lot of hair on their head is to prevent scuff when they walk through the forest. You see? So I said, how come they got hair under the arms and no scuff there? They well, <laughs> They get confused. So they always try to find purpose in everything. Now, you can say that, that, that this whole idea of trying to look at life and giving it a purpose. They say that trees are to take in the carbon dioxide and give out oxygen and balance off things. If you took all the trees away, there'd be no people around. But you can't, there's no purpose. Now, if you can think of anything that might have a purpose, try it. And I, I just I want to say this in closing. If this is a side view of a man, or a perspective view of a man, and the man has like two holes here, but no nose sticking out, uh, on the side view, the holes run up like that. You don't need a nose sticking out. As long as the holes run up, the rain isn't going to go in. But this sticking out is bad. Because when you fall and you smash the bones, the cartilaginous bones, it's hard to breathe. You get hit by a thing and it, it gets damaged. But if you had just two holes, why would you do the same thing as that thing sticking out? So nature's a bad engineer. It's terrible design. The ear of man with all these folds are terribly inefficient. If it were just a single system on top of the head, shaped like a mushroom, you'd be able to hear from all directions without turning your head. That's why the poor deer is always eating grass, then he turns up and he looks around and he goes back to eating. Have you ever noticed that? He has to look around all the time. He's frightened shitless. But if he had a mushroom ear, he wouldn't have to do that. Of course, the lions would stop at that. Now, does God provide the deer for lion food? Is this his mission? And how come he, he provides the young without giving them a chance to grow up? Now, the, the whole idea is senseless that nature is a totally, neither does it have purpose, no purpose, it is neither sane nor unsane, it just is what it is.